So today we wrap up our series called A Life Well-Aimed. And the point of the series was this, that right now is the time to intentionally aim our lives so that when we get to the end, we will be exactly where God wants us to be, having done exactly what God wants us to do. And we've looked at everything from, from our personal lives to our, our family life to our work and our finances. And today we're going to look at this area of community. This area of community. And I invite you to turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 10 as we do. In Hebrews chapter 10, there's a, there's a couple little verses that I think set up this whole idea for us very well this morning. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, in the, the handout Bibles, it's on uh, page 1191. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, and it says this, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let's encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now this is a really interesting verse because it it encourages us to meet together and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now the day is capital, capital D day. Now that should be significant, right? Because it is referring to what? What is the day that it's, that it's referring to? The second coming of Christ. This, what the writer of Hebrews is encouraging us with is you need to continue to meet with one another and to encourage one another. To spur one another on towards love and good deeds and all the more as you see the day approaching. All the more as it grows closer and closer to that glorious capital D day at the end when Christ is going to make everything new. Now, the words here from Hebrews were written, let's just say for argument's sake, a thousand years ago. A couple thousand years ago. Do you think that we're doing better at what he's saying, even though we are now a few thousand years closer to the day? Do you think that we're doing better now as we grow closer to that glorious day when Christ returns? Do you think that we're doing better now, or do you think that we're doing worse when it comes to meeting together and spurring one another on towards love and good deeds and encouraging one another? Well, I wonder if we're even doing better than we were, say, in 1931. And to prove that, I've brought with me something that's very, very special. This here is a diary. This uh, belongs to Laura Swanson. Now, Laura Swanson is Ruth Young's mother. And Laura just passed away here a month or so ago, a little over a month ago. When Laura died, she was 98 years old, six months and six days old. Okay? She grew up in Craig, Colorado. And in 1930, Christmas of 1930, she received this journal. She was 16 years old. And in 1931, she wrote on every page in this, in this journal. But it's not really like personal things. It's not about the boys that she liked or anything like that. It's just basically chronicles of what she was doing on those days. 
even, even down to what they had to eat and who they visited and where they went for drives and so on. Now, to prove my point, and this is kind of risky because if it doesn't work, it's like I'm starting on really on a wrong foot, but if it does work, I think it proves the point well. I want you to choose a month out of the year. Someone shout out a month out of the year. March? That's my wife. They, let's, they, they think this is rigged if I, if I take yours, so I can't do March. June. Okay, good, June. Now somebody else shout out a week. The first, second, third, fourth week of June in 1931. Third week. Third week of June. Okay, let's look at the third week of June. Sorry, takes me just a moment to find it. The first week of June was the 7th. The first Sunday in June was the 7th which means that the 14th was the 2nd, and the 21st... <laughs> wow, okay. The June 21st was a Sunday, uh, and Sunday school... Okay, here's what she did on June 21st, 1931. Went to Sunday school and went to the church service. Reverend Lifkin preached in the morning. And then we came home for dinner, and after dishes... We went up and got Ruth and went out to some people's place. Then out to another people's place. It's really hard to read. The, they, we don't write like this anymore, by the way. Um, and then after they, 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 they had, we had coffee and we came home and we went down to the filling station for some pop. And then we went home. Uh, and then to church where Dr. Dr. Ivers preached and Reverend Nelson, because Reverend Nelson is in Chicago at the conference. So they went to, went to church that morning, went home, had dinner, and then went out for a drive with some people and had some pop, and then they went back to church that evening. Okay? Let's do this one more time. Another month of the year. November. November a, a week in November. Second. Second week of November. Okay, let's look at November. Like Wednesday? Because they went to church twice on Wednesday usually, too. It works. Uh, let's see, what did we say? Oh, we're doing the second week of November, which would have been, it looks like, the 15th of November, which is Sunday. So they went to Sunday school and church, and Reverend preached in Swedish uh, from Revelation 21 and 22. And then Gertrude and Ivan and uh, Betty, Betty, I think, came here after church for dinner. And they went home and we went to church uh, at 3.30. And Reverend, somebody preached on, uh, I, can't, I can't quite get that. And between the afternoon and evening, we had a meeting with Emma and I. And we had, ice, had an ice cream cone. And then during uh, the afternoon, then we talked, and Margaret and somebody and somebody and somebody and somebody and somebody, Ruth, had uh, a friend, and they also had some boys, but then we went to church together that evening. And it, every, every page in this is filled with stories like that. Sunday, uh, sometimes they go to Sunday school and they go to the Swedish service and they go to the English service. Then they have somebody over for dinner and it describes what they eat. And then that evening, guess what they do? They go back to church. Wednesday is the same way. She talks about school and how she has big tests and so on. 
And, uh, um, you know, then what does she do every Wednesday evening? They go to church. And sometimes it's, they go to the, the, the YP, which is like their youth group. They go to the YP first, and then they go to church. Sometimes Sunday afternoons, they go to church in the afternoon and in the evening. It's crazy. And I, I ask the question, are we doing better at this as the day is growing closer? Are, do, are, are, are we doing better in this area of community, in this area of meeting together, of carrying one another's burdens, this, this idea of community, biblical community. And I would say that, that as we go through this morning, it, it kind of feels like the first service, I'm like, I'm depressing myself. <laughs> this really stinks to talk about this because it really is a a place where we're failing and pointing it out, it's like, wow, that, it, it's just true. That today we don't have a good grasp of what it means to, to live together in biblical community. And I want to make that case this morning, and hopefully I can point out some areas of weakness that we can, that we can shore up. And I, I hope that uh, at the end of the, the, this morning that you will, you will have this idea of the need for biblical community, and maybe some steps that you can take towards it, okay? First, a quick definition. What, what, when I'm talking this morning about biblical community, what am I talking about? I would say it this way. Believers, believers in Jesus, connected together to build one another up and to make Christ known. I don't think I have a slide for that, so I'll say it again a little bit slowly. Uh, believers, connected together to build one another up and to make Christ known. That's how I would say that. So when I'm talking about community this morning, that's what I'm, that's what I'm thinking. Okay? Now here's the case for community and why we need it and why it's so important. And I'll try and do this first part quickly. First of all, there's a theological case for community. And the, the first thing that we see in, in Scripture as it refers to this is that God lives in community. God lives in community. What do I mean? Well, God is a triune God. He lives in a trinity. There's the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And each one of them is uh, equally as important as the other. They live in perfect unity. We see this from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, as God is creating the world. Look at verse, uh, verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us... Make man in our image, in our likeness, and let him rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and so on. Let us make man in our image. Who is this that's speaking? It's one God. It's God speaking of the unity and the community that he experiences within himself. Let us make man in our own image. So God himself lives in community, but it doesn't stop there. God created us for community. If you turn over to the next page, when God creates the world at the end of each day, he says, it's good. This is good. You know, God makes something, he steps back and he observes it. This is good. But what is the first thing that God says is not good? Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be, what? Alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So the idea 
of, of man himself, when God looked at Adam and he was by himself, he's like, that's not good. That's not good. And so he created the helper. He created this relationship in which Adam could experience the fullness of everything that God created him for in the way that God created him to experience it. And that was not alone. That was, in essence, in community. Adam was to be together. Now, it doesn't stop there because we see that God's plan for salvation would come through his community. What do I mean there? The the, the nation of Israel. God's plan for salvation was to come through the nation of Israel. He he called Abraham and he he said, Abraham, I'm going to make you a blessing to all of the nations. And through you, the the entire world, all the nations are going to be blessed. And so God preserves and prepares and and, um, keeps a community, the nation of Israel, from whom will come the Messiah. I'd like for you to turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 1. Oftentimes we'll read this around Christmas time or be reminded of this at, at Christmas time, but in Matthew chapter 1, it's a, a genealogy. And if you, if you look at the first verse, it says the record or a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it goes goes on to describe the lineage from which the Messiah, Jesus Christ, came. Where does it start? Who's the first name on the list? Abraham. So it starts with God choosing Abraham, and from Abraham would come this mighty nation. What was the the purpose of the nation of Israel? Well, it was God's chosen people from whom the Messiah would come. And as you read through this list, you see some notable names. There's David a little bit later on there. Um, And then finally in verse 16, you see, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. So, God's plan for salvation would come through this community. It would come through his people. But it doesn't stop there. Because now Christ is here, and he's changed everything, and people, uh, we relate to God differently now. And what does that mean for us today as the church? Well, the church in Scripture is always described in the language of community. For example, if you, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27, it says, Now you are the body of Christ And each one of you is part of it. What's Paul talking about here? He's talking about the church. He's talking about how individuals all collectively together, connected together, form the body of Christ, which is the church. So in this language that Paul uses, he he talks about how a body is made up of many different parts. And how each part has a different role to play. But the body hurts if one of the parts is hurting. And if not all the parts are connected, then the body itself suffers because it doesn't have its full horsepower, if you will. But all of us are mutually connected together. The body of Christ. We are the church. Here's another passage. It's one of my favorites in talking about the church from 1 Peter 
Chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. You know, when it, who we are as the body of Christ, as, a, as the church, is we are now a chosen people. We are, we are now the, the blessed community of God for the purpose of declaring the praises of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Do you see that? How God rescued us. Each individually. Yeah, Jesus saved you. He saved me too. But He saved us to declare the praises of Him who called us from darkness into His marvelous light. And finally, theologically, I would say it this way. A fully devoted follower of Christ must be connected to a community of believers. Now, some of you were with me all the way up till I said that. Because I think we have this, uh, this idea in our culture today that my faith is, is personal. My faith is, is personal. And so, I'll have my faith, and you have your faith, and I'm not going to interfere with your faith And you don't interfere with my faith. My faith is personal. And I would say it this way. Your faith is personal. It is between you and God, but your faith is not private. It's not private. What do I mean by that? I mean that if we are the body of Christ, if one person in the body is hurting, then the entire body hurts, right? And if one part of the body is rejoicing, then the whole body ought to rejoice with them. And when we talk about this language of the church, we see that it is, yeah, your, your personal faith, and it's your personal faith, and it's my personal faith, and it's all of us, but we come together collectively as a body, as a whole. Your personal faith matters to the rest of the body. So it is between you and God, but it's not exclusively between you and God. We're all in this together. We are all part of this chosen people that God has called to make known His Son, Jesus, in the world. I'd also say this about this idea. You know, some, some would say, well, isn't it just that God wants me to personally be as close to Him as possible? And, you know, my faith is, is me and God. Yes, that is, that is true. But if you are going to fully obey the Scriptures in what um, the Bible asks us to do as believers, there are some things that the Bible commands us to do that you cannot do by yourself. In fact, in Scripture, over a hundred times, there are statements of how we should treat one another. The one another statements of, uh, of Scripture. I'll just give you a few of them. John thirteen thirty five and this one is Jesus speaking to his disciples. He said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now that's a bold statement of Jesus in, in, in looking at his disciples and saying, you know, when, when outsiders are looking in on this deal, the way that they're going to know that you're my disciples and this thing is real for you is the way that you love one another. So what do, what, do we, what do we see by that? They, they need each other. Collectively, they're, they're each individual disciples of Jesus. You know, um, 
this group is made up of individual followers of Jesus, but the, the, the most attractive thing, the thing that Jesus points to that outsiders are going to look in on, is the way that they love one another. Look at Hebrews chapter 3, 13. Uh, encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Can you obey that one by yourself? Can you obey that command of Scripture by yourself? No, there needs to be another. And who is that other that you are encouraging daily? That's a challenge, isn't it? Look at this one, Galatians 5.13. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. We should be about serving one another. Or this one, Romans 12.10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love and honor one another above yourselves. Ephesians 4.32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And honestly, the list goes on and on and on and on. Commands that we should be doing with one another in living in full obedience to the Scripture. So, there's a theological case. You know, I think it's pretty black and white that these are things that God created us for, and these are things that we ought to be obeying in relation to how we relate to one another in community. But there's also a sociological argument. And this, I would just say it simply this way. We are at our best when we are in community. We're at our best when we are in community. Here's what sociologists are are, are finding. Uh, They're finding that today, more than ever, we have more connections. Nod your head if you would agree with that. Do you feel like you have more connections today than you had at any other time? We're thinking about social media. We're thinking about the internet. We're thinking about, you know, it wasn't that long ago when you would graduate from from high school and... um, you wouldn't stay in touch with any of the people that you graduated with until, you know, maybe your 25th high school reunion, right? When everybody comes back together and you would have no idea what that person was up to or where they'd been or, you know, anything exciting about them. Now I have lots and lots of connections with people that I graduated with. I've not seen them face to face, but I know what they're doing. I know where they're at. That's unusual. It's different. So that means that we're more satisfied and content in our relationships today than ever, right? Because we have more of them and we can stay in touch and, you know, we aren't so disconnected with with old acquaintances and such. That makes us happier, right? Actually, it doesn't. Although we're more connected than we've ever been, more people with more people than we've ever been, despite the fact that it's easier to find people and share common interests, than it's ever been, we feel more alone and more unknown than at any other time in measurable human history. So something's gone awry in how we define community and how we define and function in relationships. I invite you to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Anytime you talk about Christian community... You have to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2. It's kind of the go-to place. In fact, 
sociologists who are not Christians, who would even maybe even call themselves atheists, love Acts chapter 2. Why? Because this is a movement, a social movement that took a, a small group of, of, of Jesus followers and exploded. And the book of Acts chronicles the history of how that happened. I want to start by reading from Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And it says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now this is an interesting picture here because the they, it's probably referring to the disciples, all of the, which are now called the apostles. These are the apostles. In chapter 1, they, um, they appoint a new apostle. And so that's kind of the context that we're in. And when it says that they were gathered together, you know, it's, it's at least the apostles gathered together. And, and so we're talking about a real small group of people. But there may have well been many more uh, of the early Christians together waiting to see what God was going to do among their church, among their gathering. And if you fast forward a little bit and you just kind of skim through what happens, God shows up and the Holy Spirit comes for the first time into, into this gathering, into the church. And there's these miracles that are happening and people are, they, they don't understand it, but it was so, so powerful that it was drawing a crowd. And if you fast forward through this little section, you see that now there's a crowd that gathers and they're wondering what's going on in there, in, in this room where there's this small group of Jesus followers. They're wondering what's happening in there and it says that Peter addresses the crowd. Now, says he addressed them with a loud voice. And I don't know whether he was standing at a window or if he climbed up on the roof or if he, there was a balcony or what it was. But Peter addresses the crowd and he preaches this sermon. And he, he says, this is what's happening. God is showing up. And you can be a part of it. And in the end, um, Peter, in verse 38, it says, Peter replied, repent and be baptized Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized and 3,000 were added to their number that day. Whoa, wait, that is an explosion of the gospel in the early church. Here's this gathering of apostles that are in, in a room together. It's like, you know, here's our small group. We're just hanging out. We're just praying together. And then all of a sudden now there's 3,000. Can you imagine the logistical nightmare of that? Can you imagine what that looks like? I mean, think of maybe churches that you've been a part of in the past. If, if 3,000 people just showed up one Sunday morning, what would that look like? What would that look like? It's a, 
It's a logistical nightmare. And so when you, when you read what they actually did, this is very interesting from a sociological standpoint. Look at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And all the believers were together and they had everything in common. And selling their possessions and goods, they gave their, and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes. And they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And an incredible scripture. Now, I don't think, I don't think that Peter... And the guys got out and, and, and they made some kind of an organizational chart and they had, they, you know, they, they announced from the loudspeaker, hey, on Tuesday we're going to have a small group leaders training. Guys, because there's a problem. No, I don't think it was that way at all. I don't think they were sitting down with some kind of a, a whiteboard and sketching out all of the possibilities of the ways that they could organize this new megachurch. It just says that this is what they, what they did, you know, there was a hierarchy, so they, they, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. But when it came down to the nitty-gritty, what they, what they were actually doing was just living together. They were just do, doing life together. And it says that they met, met in each other's homes and they you know, supported one another with the you know, sharing of their, their, their resources it says every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they, they broke bread and they were praising God for his favor in their life and people were being added to their number daily because they were coming to Christ. And that's incredible. What's the point of that? Well, the point is we're at our best when we're in community. We're at our best when we're in community. It was so attractive in that first century that people wanted in. And every day people were being saved because of what they saw inside this group of believers who were doing life together. Now, there's an organizational case to be made here too. And one of the points that I would say in the, in the organizational, I'll actually switch these two around from what they are in your notes. So the first one is this, that, that the church has health and capacity when people are connected to one another. The church has health and capacity when people are connected to one another. Now, have you thought about this? Peter did not know the names of all the new people in the church. Peter, Peter didn't know all of the, the, the names of the people in the church. and Peter didn't know all of the needs that were represented by all of these thousands of people within the church now. And that's okay. That's a good thing. Why is it okay that Peter didn't know all of the, the needs and all of the names of all of the people in the church? Because someone did. Right? Peter doesn't have to be the guy. It doesn't have to be him knowing you know, all of the names and all of the problems represented by these thousands and all of these new people that are coming in every day. He's, it's not that, it, that the relational connections all go through him. Why? Because everyone had a connection with someone. Everyone had a connection with someone. I think about it like this. You know, like a, it's kind of like a ski boat. 
Now, I think sometimes um, people view the pastor's responsibility in a church to know all of the all the things that are going on in in their life, and the pastor becomes the main point of connection. For, for these people, and it's kind of like a ski boat, and there's all these ropes going out from the, from the back of the ski boat, and they're tied on to all of these people. Now, the, the size or the scalability of this model is, is always determined by the relational capacity of the leader. Makes sense, right? So, there's only so many connections that, that one person can foster and, and, and know and as soon as, in this model, as soon as one person has a need that's not being taken care of, then what happens? They feel disconnected. They feel like everything else is moving on without them, and they're, they're just sitting there floating, not going anywhere. And so the, 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 the problem with this, this kind of model in thinking that, well, you know, if the pastor's the point of, of, of connection, is that... There's only a certain amount of capacity that every person has in terms of relationship. Some have more and some have less, but whatever that is, there is a number, and the church can't grow beyond that capacity. Now, what do we see in Acts chapter 2? Not everybody was connected to Peter. Not everybody was connected to the apostles. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, but where was their primary connections being made? With one another. The primary connections were being made with one another, and they were meeting in their homes. And you have to remember that there's not even a church building. They can't even gather together you know, under one roof. They're, they're meeting together when they, when they get all together. You know, this mass of people together, it's just outside someplace, and somebody's yelling. And, but the real ministry is happening where? It's happening over dinner. It's happening when they gather together and they pray for one another. And it's happening together when they're meeting in one another's homes. So I'll say this about an organizational case as well. The most attractive thing for outsiders to see is the love in Christian community. The most attractive thing for outsiders to see is the love in Christian community. And we see that in Acts chapter 2 in, in, in that people were being drawn to this thing and, and, and they were being added to, the, to their number daily, those who were being saved. But I'd like for you to turn back just a few pages to John chapter 17. I want to show you a, a prayer that Jesus prayed. This is on the, in the handout Bibles is on page 1071. John chapter 17, starting in verse 20, and it says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Now, in context, Jesus just got done praying for his friends, for his followers. And he says here, as he, as he begins, is, my prayer is not for them alone. In other words, not for these guys who are believing in me right now, my disciples. But I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Now, who is that? Who are the people that are going to believe in Jesus through the disciples' message? Well, it's me. And it's you. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have believed as a result of the disciples taking the message of Jesus to the world. 
And so Jesus right here, if you want to think of it in this way, Jesus is praying for you. He's praying for me and he's praying for us together. And here's what he says. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So Jesus prays for you. He prays for me. He prays for all of those who are going to believe the message of the gospel and be saved. And he says what? He says, I pray that they will be one. Just, Father, as you and I are one, I pray that they're going to be one. So that, and this is the, this is the interesting part, so that, what? The world may believe. Did you see that? Verse 21. Just as you are in me and I am in, am in them, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You see, it's undeniable in Jesus' eyes. You know, we read that verse earlier about how, you know, when people look in, you know, it's so important that they see how we love one another. And here his prayer is so convicting because what he's saying is that the, the message of the gospel is proclaimed most clearly to the world around us when we're connected together as followers of Christ. When we think about what the world thinks of the church today, would you say that the number one thing that they think about is that we're connected? <laughs> Do they marvel at how much we love each other? You know, probably not. So I'd like to, like to say, you know, I think there's a convincing case for living together in community. And then the question comes down to, how do we do that? How do we do that? What is the, the, the steps that we can take towards this end of living together in biblical community? Well, I want to give a couple of misconceptions about this first. And the first one is this, that many expect that coming to church means that they're plugged in, that they're connected, but that's just simply not the case. You see, it's simply unrealistic for us to expect that a few minutes on Sunday morning in, you know, turn around and shaking someone's hand or, or, or visiting out in the lobby before or after a service, that, that a few minutes is achieving any real sense of connection with the body of Christ. It's just unrealistic to think that, that in a few minutes, you know, that there's any real sorts of connections. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't significant conversations because there are significant conversations that happen. But is that the end? Is that what we're shooting for? Is just for a few minutes, you know, to, to catch up on what's going on and to see how the crops are looking and to see how the pokes are playing and to see how the Broncos look this afternoon or any of those kinds of things? I would call those acquaintances. I don't think that those are real significant connections. Why? Because it really doesn't deal with anything beyond the surface. Now, there's nothing wrong with having acquaintances. We all have them, and we need to have lots of them. But if you don't have someone in your life who's a believer, that you're connected with, then you're missing out on the fullness of life that Christ calls us to. If you don't have someone in your life who, who, who's a believer, 
that knows you beyond just the front that, 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 that we all put out there for other people to see. If you don't have that one person who's a believer in your life that can encourage you and walk the road of life with you, then you're missing out on the fullness of what life in Christ really means. There's another misconception about community, and, and that's this. And I really don't want these to sound harsh. This is just true. And this, is, this is just how, how many people think. And it's this. Many expect that it's the church's responsibi- responsibility to see that they're connected, and it's not. I mean, a lot of people feel like, like, like it's the church's responsibility that, that they have friends. And it is the church's responsibility to get, uh, give opportunity for people to get together and to cur- encourage people to have you know, friendships and, and relationships with other believers. And it's, it's great for the church to, to, to have opportunities for, for people, especially those who are new, to meet other, uh, other people who are new and, and to give them opportunities to, to, to be acquaintances. And, and it's even good for the church to put out the need like we're doing this morning and say, you know what, this is something that's that's urgent, and it's important for all of us to, to aim for in our lives. That's the church's job. But at the end of the day, you have to take some steps. I have to take some steps to be a friend to someone else. I have to take some steps to, to do the hard work of meeting together, to praying together, See, I think most church activities are a great place for first steps towards relationships, but, but some never move on from there. And so their whole connecting point with others is through these one-time events. And those are great for, for creating acquaintances, but if a, if a person's only connection to the church is going from one event to another to another to another, at the end of the day, they're still feeling, I don't really feel like I'm connected. And that's a problem. And so what is it that that I would call you to? What is it that I would say, you know, here's some things that you can do. I had a really hard time coming up with with some things to encourage you with. I really did. Like, how how do we do this? Uh, You know, where are people at and what do they need to hear in order to move towards this? And one of the things that I really wanted to say, and I I thought, you know what, this really is not going to come across very well, but I'll say it this way, is... We need to relearn how to make friends. Right? We really do. And so I think all of these things that I'm going to suggest is that that this is a need, um, and here's some things that you can do, but ultimately what I'm saying is we need to just learn how to make friends. And here's, here's the aim of community. Here's, uh, I think, what I'm calling you to, to, to aim towards. And, and the first thing is to understand the need understand the need. You aren't going to do anything about anything if you don't understand that you, that you have a need for this. I think I, I, I've given a, you know, some good points to think about in terms of the, you know, what the Bible says and you know, the, these other things, sociological, organizational evidences for the need. But if you don't own that, if, the, if that's not something that's inside of you, uh, I really feel like I need to be connected and I need to do something about this, then any, any of these other things are just going to be you know, trying to, to frost over a cake that's not fully cooked in the middle. So we need to understand the need. And, you know, if you, if you still aren't convinced this morning, that's fine. That's, that, that's great. I would go to the book of Acts 
And I would start where we left off at Acts chapter 2, and I would ask the question, could any of what we saw in the, in the book of Acts happen if the believers were solo, if they were flying solo, if all of them um, you know, were just on a mission for God by themselves and they were just going for it and there was no community of believers, could any of what we see in the book of Acts, the, 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 the explosion in the first century, could that have happened? I think that you'll see that there is a need for Christian community. Second, I would say this. I would say prioritize the time. Um, you know, when you, when, when you read through uh, something like this, uh, one of the things that, I'm, that, that, that I notice as I read through this is the things that aren't mentioned, things that they don't do. Um, there's no mention of any television programs that are watched. <laughs> right, Nick? Weren't watching much television in 31, right? No. You can't speak for 31. I, okay. No, it's, uh, it's amazing when you think about it. Um, they have the same number of hours in the day that we do. And we would say, you know, we're really, too, we're too busy, we're too busy, we're too busy. Time is not the problem, priority is. Is that fair? You have the same number of days or hours in a day that have existed from the beginning of time, we just choose to spend them differently today. And we have all, of the, all sorts of needs that come up, and we say we need to do this, we need to do this, and we make time for them. If we understand the need here, then we have to prioritize the time. And that, that's tough, and for some that's where it stops. It's like, we don't have time? Okay, so we don't do it. But if you can prioritize the time, then the next thing that I would say is this. Open up your home. Open up your home. And some of you, this, this is where it gets really, really touchy because it's like, I understand. For, I mean, for us, I know what, what kind of a big deal it is. We don't, we don't live in our house every day in the same condition that it is in when people come over for dinner. <laughs> Do you have that same feeling? So you think about having somebody over to your house and it's like, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of work that goes into that. You know, what I would say, though, is this, that the ultimate goal in creating friendships is that, in the end, we're looking for friendships of, of, of people who are connected with one another and they know who that person really is. And we have a, 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 just a couple of relationships, my wife and I, that are like this, where if that person is coming over, it's not such a big deal what's cluttered around the house. And it's not such a big deal if they see dishes undone in the, in the sink. Why? Because we've done the hard work of them allowing them into our lives, and they know that this is how we live. And that's ultimately what we're shooting for. But it does take time, and that's the, that's the fourth thing, to commit to the long haul. Commit to the long haul. You don't make friends overnight. And some of these things that we're shooting for you know, they happen over the period of months and years. And so, um, you know, here in a few weeks, we're uh, starting a series where we're inviting people to be in small groups for a period of time. And we're going we're gonna to challenge you to, to, to commit for a, a, a period of weeks to, to meet together in a small group. Now, I think that's great, but at the end of six weeks, I think that you've gotten a good start into building these kind of deep, meaningful relationships that all of us desire. 
And so what we're really asking is that you would commit to the long haul and begin the process of, okay, where do I start? But understand that it's going to be a journey. And the final thing is this, that ultimately we're pursuing vulnerability and accountability. Vulnerability and accountability. Vulnerability, I would say this, vulnerability is, this is who I really am. Here it is. This is who I really am. That's what it means to be vulnerable. Um, all of us live with these kinds of projected images. What do, we want to, what, what do we want other people to see in us? Vulnerability is opening that up so that someone could see who I really am. And accountability is this. Would you help me be what God wants me to be? This is who I really am. And the accountability part says, would you help me be who God wants me to be? And that's what we're pursuing in our relationships with one another. That's what is so attractive to outsiders as they look in. That's what all of us have this deep longing and need for, is those kinds of relationships where we can just be. This is just me. And it's okay for me not to have everything together. And it's okay for me to admit that I need help in some areas. And so... I don't have a real elegant way of closing this uh, message today other than saying, do you feel the need? You know, and what are you willing to do for it? What steps are you willing to take to pursue this, this level of biblical community that all of us not only want, but we need? But we need. So as we close here, the, the worship team is going to come up and we're going to sing a final song. And uh, the song actually that we're going to sing is from Revelation. And I think Revelation is a great uh, reminder of, of what God is ultimately doing. He's rescuing us to be a community of people who are going to forever praise Him because of the greatness of Jesus. And so as we sing that, be reminded of that. And the ushers are going to come forward as well and they're going to take up our morning offering and if you're our guest here, please let the plate pass by. But this is a time for those who call North Hills home to support our ministry here and around the world. We ask everyone to drop those connect cards in the offering plate as it goes by. And I'll invite you to stand to your feet as we close in this final song.